Bonjour. I'm Terence Galenter, your American friend in Paris, coming to you almost live from Café Terence in Paris's 3e arrondissement. Today and every Saturday, I will be joined by colleagues to discuss books, movies, and song. And at the finale of every broadcast, I will sing a selection from the American Songbook. Well, on the line from San Francisco is the dean of Bay Area talk show hosts. And uh, if you live in the Bay Area or have lived in the Bay Area any time in the last 40 years, and the name Michael Krasny is not a, uh, not a strange one to you. Michael, uh, welcome to Paris. Thank you. Good to have you. It's uh, no, it's this is a great a pleasure. I like call it an honor, as I always used to say. I wanted to be Michael Krasny when I grew up, but I haven't grown up yet, so I guess there's some time to, to work on it. Uh, Cleveland, Ohio, or Cleveland Heights, which I guess what a, a suburb of Shaker Heights? No, uh, a very different suburb than Shaker Heights uh, from the other side of the tracks. Cleveland Heights is. Um, a suburb in uh, the eastern part of Cleveland, and uh, it is where I grew up for the most part. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I said, I alluded to the 1954 Indians, 111 wins in 154 game season. You were 10 years old, and when the Giants beat them four straight, you must have cried like a baby. It was very sad, and the irony is uh, I moved to California and became a Giants fan, but it was a different <laughs> franchise, of course. It was San Francisco, but... Uh, it was heartbreaking at age 10 to be an Indians fan, especially, as you say, it was their best season ever. Oh, it was season an incredible team. team. Yeah. That was incredible. Uh, Ohio University, uh, I guess the Oxford of the United States, uh, undergraduate, master's degree, and then uh, University of Wisconsin, where you picked up a PhD and a wife. Uh, correct. Although Oxford was Miami University, not Ohio U. Oh, so your, your bio indicates it was Ohio. Bio, bio. Somewhere, somewhere is... Someone screwed up. Yeah, my, the Miami of Ohio. Okay. The cradle of coaches. Well, they're both in Ohio. Miami University is also in Oxford, Ohio, but uh, Ohio oh, okay. University is in Athens, Ohio. Athens, Athens, Ohio. Okay, exactly. Okay. Pardon me. Sorry, sorry about that. And then you came to San Francisco in 1970. Uh, just before or after Kent State when you arrived? Well, again, I was I was in Wisconsin. Not Kent. My brother was in Kent State. <laughs> no, no, but I mean the events at Kent State. Oh, I'm sorry. You mean uh, four dead in Ohio? Yeah, yeah. No, that that occurred while I was working on my PhD at Madison. So still in the spring, and then, and then you come to San Francisco State. Uh, San Francisco, a, a liberal environment, kind of like the schools you went to, and uh, Sam Hayakawa is your boss. Actually, I had I other right opinions after Hayakawa, and uh, it was um, it's interesting that you should say it was like those schools I went to because. In many ways, San Francisco State was far to the left, even of what was going on in Madison. It was a black student-led strike. They were way ahead of their time in that sense. Mm -hmm. But that was the year before I came, when Hayakawa got up with a megaphone on top of a, became an instant folk hero on top of a truck and started uh, yelling at the students and combating them verbally. And then ultimately, we would see him in New York on 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 the on the late evening news. But But I think he was still. The president when you were there, just that that episode had passed. Uh, he, for a little while, you're right, he was the president. But the, the episode and the strike was the year before I came. Yeah, a black studies program was finally finally launched on, on campus. Uh, well, you, you know, your radio career, you started KTIM back in the days when Edward R. Newman was doing documentaries on NBC about hot tub bathing in Marin County, where you and I both lived at the time. How did that gig come about, and were you always attracted to uh, being a broadcaster? 
No, I just sort of invented myself as a broadcaster. I thought uh, it would be a good way to meet people in Marin County where I lived and interview people. There were a lot of not only luminaries and famous citizens, but there were also people who were doing, I thought, work that was really worth noting and worth the public being aware of. And the fact of the matter was Marin was known for this hot tubbing. Even later, George Bush the first spoke about it as a place of hot tubbing and Cyrus McFadden wrote the serial and NBC did the show I Want It All Now about Marin's hedonism and materialism. It had that reputation and I thought, well, I'll, I'll do something different. I'll call it Beyond the Hot Tub. And that was my, my radio show. I just went, How did the gig come about? How did you, how did you get the gig? Did you? Well, they used to have uh, a radio station right above the Marin Independent Journal. And I thought, okay, maybe they'll want somebody to do a kind of public affairs celebrity oriented show once a week, and I pitched them, and they said, good idea. They were being bought by another independent outfit from Los Angeles. They wanted to have a more public service profile, and the timing was good, and so I set, settled into a once-a-week radio show. But I always like using my voice, and I always like politics and talking about current events, so it seemed a pretty good fit and a good way. Uh, I was already a tenured professor, so it was a good way to uh, stretch myself. And who were some of the people, apart from like Jerry Garcia, the people who were doing this good work that you uh, you recognized at that point in the early 70s or late 70s? Well, the first show I did at KTIM was with uh, someone named Roland Post, who was probably the best political commentator I think the Bay Area has ever had. He was for many years. R-O-L-L-I-N. I remember Roland Post. Do you? Good. Yeah. Uh, you've got a long memory, Terry. He was. Uh, I'm old, Michael. Well, he was with KRON and KQED. Uh, and there were, you know, a number of people. I had uh, interviews with uh, Grace Slick. I had an interview uh, with uh, Jerry Kay, who is a screenwriter. Uh, a lot of people in that kind of celebrity uh, grouping or cohort that lived in Marin at the time, Santana. But I also had people on, for example, we were doing hospice work. I, I learned about a lot of people in Marin. There was a woman named Elizabeth Terwilliger who was a... Um, I uh, took kids on nature walks, and um, I was really interested in the work she was doing. I had a guy who was one of the inventors of Feldenkrais. I had Rollo May, who was a famous psychology, existential psychologist who lived I remember Rollo May. In Tiburon. Love and Will. Love uh, and Will was the book. Yeah, uh, Love and Will. That's right. Very good. Um, so there were people in Marin to draw from, and I drew from them. And were you basically producing your, your own show, Finding the Talent? Uh, at first, yes, but then there was a young man who ran uh, the radio station in San Francisco State named Eric Myers, who's made a name for himself now across the pond in, in the UK. Mm -hmm. He works with the BBC and he does a lot of voiceover stuff with the BBC, but he was running the San Francisco State radio station. He came into my office one day and said, I'd like to work with you. And I said, good, I need somebody to do the bookings and come uh, help with technical stuff when it's necessary. And Eric was great. And, and then, you know, you the arc of your career is what people plan for, although you've had it without planning. You go, typically you start in a small station, maybe not quite the 30-watt station at KTIM was, but, and then you move not just to a, a mid-market, you go to KGO, which was the most powerful uh, commercial station uh, run by Mickey Luckoff at the time in, in San Francisco. And you do eight years on commercial commercial radio. 
having ultimately gone to KQED, which to me is where you always were intended to go, your natural, your natural home, how difficult was it to, or how much pressure did you have to mod moderate your, uh, your, your views in a, in a commercial environment? Well, the difference was pretty dramatic because when you were doing, when I was doing commercial radio, and it's one of the reasons why it was not a good fit for me, the idea, boy, you're drinking a lot of wine there. You really do belong in Pittsburgh. No, I'm, I'm drinking apple juice. Oh, it looks like wine. No, no, the wine, <clears throat> well, just to keep my voice, uh, it's, it's 10 o'clock here. Best place for wine outside of Napa probably is where you are and where I am. Uh, there was um, there was a lot of emphasis and, frankly, a lot of pressure to get people revved up in commercial radio, to get them, you know, to bang their dashboards and get them talking about controversy, especially in that era. And they wanted that kind of uh, effect on, on the listeners. Uh, it wasn't my uh, strong suit. It wasn't really in my wheelhouse. And uh, so when I made the transition, although I had done a lot of editorializing, I suddenly was removed from the editorializing. I became much more of a journalist and a journalist who was looking for questions to ask from both sides of the perspective and multidimensional type. So of... you're still at KGO or when you moved over? No, when I moved over. I mean, there was no, a... okay. In fact, there was a guy named Marshall Turner who's become a friend of mine. He's interesting little footnote is he's the uh, head of the Bohemian Club now. Uh, they're in pandemic mode. But uh, Marshall was, at the time, the acting head of KQED. He was a businessman, but he took it over just out of pro bono goodness of his heart. And he said there was a lot of uh, Sturm und Drang about the fact that they were hiring somebody from ABC, KGO, commercial radio, you know, it was like mm -hmm. a bit of a scandal. Um, and then I, uh, I was, that was sort of under the radar for me. I didn't realize it just tried to make the transition. When I was at KGO, they said I sounded too NPR. And when I was at KQED, I started hearing I sounded too KGO or ABC, but somehow I managed to find the balance or the equilibrium. But to me, I mean, I remember, you know, when you'd made the transition, I was, how long, there wasn't a long period of time when you were out of work, was there? About, the job the, came pretty, about a gestation, about nine months or so. Oh, was it that long? Okay. And, I, you know, I don't remember what the program was like before you took it over. And how, how did you, uh, was it, did you adapt it to your style immediately or was this over a little bit of time? No, there's a lot of adapting. When I took it over, it was run by, actually, the guy who started the program, Kevin Persglove, and uh, he later became press secretary to the mayor of San Jose, Susan Hammer, and became the spokesperson for eBay, so he's very wealthy now. Um, but when he was doing the show, it was largely focused on local politics, and they were doing very local politics. They were doing, you know, like uh, water rates in Contra Costa County and uh, things that were uh, geared toward uh, policy uh, on a local uh, in terms of a local area or a local uh, uh, range. When I took it over, I said, let's do state and, and national and international. And let's also do the arts. I felt very strongly about that. I wanted to expand that. And we did. We expanded it all. And uh, I think it was part of the reason why it was successful, other than the fact that there were no commercials. And a lot of the people migrated from KGO to be with me at KQED. I took a, a great number of people with me. I learned later on. So it became, actually, the program I was doing for them became the number one program in the Bay Area. Were there, were there any famous broadcasters that had influenced you, even subconsciously when you're growing up since you didn't intend to be a broadcaster? 
I think there were, and ironically, I think a TV broadcasters more than I do radio broadcasters because mm-hmm. as a kid, I watched a lot of TV and I watched Dick Cavett, who I thought was very good. I watched Bill Buckley when he had a talk show, mm-hmm. both sides of the political spectrum. I liked Johnny Carson. I liked, um, you know, what he did. I even liked Merv Griffin, though. He was a bit sappy from even as a kid, I thought. Um, and I just saw without even real. Uh, uh, Cleveland's own Mike Douglas wasn't in that. <laughs> no, I watched Mike Douglas, too. In fact, a, a fraternity brother of mine at Ohio University became a producer for Mike Douglas when he was in Chicago and later on became a producer of the Emmys and the Grammys, a guy named Ken Ehrlich. But I was very tuned in without realizing it to absorbing sort of the way they were operating and their methodology. And uh, I, I guess, you know, so you, you have sort of, as a, if you're a talk show host, you got to be somewhat of a generalist, but it takes a certain kind of curiosity and gift of gab. And people will say to me, I've been asked a number of times, how about doing a book on interviewing? Or how about doing a, I did something for the teaching company on masterpieces of short fiction, because I'm an English professor. I said, how about doing something like that? They asked me about interviewing. I don't know how I interview, but I, as a kid, I think I absorbed a lot about it. When I go into an interview, it's sort of like a bat going in a cave. It's radar or something. You know, I mean, how do you work? You work... Uh, well, I think it's very similar. <clears throat> I think you start out with a, a general curiosity. Yeah. And, and and you know a lot of stuff. You know, it's very important to know a lot of stuff because when you're talking to someone, they may mention something that uh, had not been mentioned in, in, in briefings or writing, and it's more interesting than where you wanted to go. The audience never knows. You just go with them. That's it's what I love about it. You don't know where you're going. It's kind of like jazz. It's improvisational. But you're prepared. You you know, you know have the chops. You've done your preparation. I mean, I, I think you remind me more. Uh, Jack Parr made the comment to Dick Cavett early in his career. He says, don't do interviews. Have conversations. Yeah, I prefer conversations. And I watched Jack Parr as a kid, too. And uh, <laughs> I like Jack Parr. Uh, he was very temperamental. I saw him walk off. I saw that famous show he has where he actually... Off. He was mad about things that now seem almost trivial because I've read about that history and I, uh, I realized he was extremely temperamental. Um, that was not a problem for me. And, and frankly, um, I've not had those moments uh, on the air. I think they were expected of people who had large audiences, you know, that they would be, Imus, for example, would go into meltdowns and Howard Stern. I'm thinking about radio people now. Sure. You know, it was the sensationalism of and the temperamental nature of uh, the unpredictability of what they would do. But if you listen well and if you want to do serious stuff and you want to believe in the content, I mean, you've come into this interview with me obviously prepared. And, you know, people say to me, well, how do you do what you do? You do your homework. I said one time early on in my career they could put that on my my tombstone, and I still say that. He did his homework. Absolutely. I think preparation. I remember as a kid – uh, I was a pretty good student, but I would never study. And I, I would take out my notes. I'd read them once or twice, put them aside. I had friends who were studying all night. I said, look, I was in the classroom all year. If I don't know it now, I'm not going to know it tomorrow. And I was prepared. Now, if it were physics or uh, chemistry, I was going to fail anyway. It didn't make any difference how much I prepared. <laughs> but on things that we can talk about. Wait, let's get, you know, go back to your, you know, uh, simultaneous with doing two hours a day. Although, you mentioned, funny you mentioned Johnny Carson. In terms of longevity, I guess you were the Johnny Carson of local uh, local broadcasters in the Bay Area, uh, and 
He also got a day off at least once a week. Apparently, you're off on Fridays now. Not anymore. I have been. Not anymore. Not anymore. Um, in fact, this is this is worth talking about because it's uh, about halfway into my career. Um, I got a call one day, and uh, I was told that somebody who will remain unnamed, who is a well-known philanthropist, they wanted to um, uh, give a large amount of money, not to KQED, but to my program. Uh, they were people I knew, and they were lovely people, and they decided on a walk uh, in Sicily that they wanted to support the program. The woman, uh, this is a couple, had listened to me when she was having serious back and, and uh, neck pain, and she said it uh, it cheered her and, and got her up in the morning and all that sort of stuff. And it was, it was like money from uh, manna from heaven or something. So the result was uh, suddenly there was a lot of, uh, shall we say, largesse that came into the program. And they said to me, uh, Raul Ramirez, uh, of blessed memory, who was my executive producer, said, well, why don't you take Fridays off? I know you want to write books. And I did. I took Fridays off. And um, they had a host uh, named Dave Iverson, had uh, a couple of hosts there. And recently, more recently, we went into a transitional phase. And Mina Kim, who was doing Friday after Dave Iverson, uh, the program director at the time was a fellow named Ethan Lindsay who said to me, you want to do one hour, either four days a week or five days a week? And I said, I'll do it five days a week. I, I just felt it was fair. So I've been doing one hour, five days a week. When I hang it up, exactly 28 years to the day of when I began on February the 15th, the day after Valentine's Day, it'll be just one hour as it has been now. Uh, any any event, I started to say when you first uh, uh, were on uh, KQED, uh, you had that great producer, Robin Giannatasio Mal. I mean, a great name anyway. And yeah, how a name many remember to this absolutely. day. Absolutely. Uh, now when you're doing two hours, going back to that period of time, uh, how much of this is input is coming from you and how much is it where you're talking to your producing staff and say, well, this is going on, this is happening politically, uh, this book is just coming out, uh, uh, these are the kind of things I'd like to do. Uh, you know, how much control do you have over the programming? Well, the ideas are from the, the team, which means me and, and the producers. Uh, and at first I just had Robin and Candace Francis, who now works with the ACLU, African-American woman. And uh, things changed. And when we got more money out of heaven, uh, we hired another full-time producer. Uh, now we've got pretty much a senior editor and three producers. And the ideas are generated by me as well as by my team. Uh, but ultimately, the buck stops with me. I have to approve the idea of what we're doing. We do a mix. We do, you know, I, I like to say the discourse level and the content is always high, but it's, uh, you never know what we're going to be talking about. I did a lot of authors early on. Mm -hmm. In fact, I think that was my signature. I once said to Studs Terkel, not vainly, but just because it came to me, I said, Studs, I think I've interviewed more authors than you have. And I, I think at that point I had. So I became known for interviewing authors and also for a lot of international and geopolitical analysis and programs geared into international stuff as well as the local and state and national. We started in recent years moving away from a lot of the authors, uh, especially the fiction authors, because we realized that we had it was a call-in program. We got a lot more response when we were talking to authors of political books or books that were you know, my own orientation is literary, but 
uh, authors who were timely and, and, and current. So there's been a kind of different shape of uh, less geopolitical stuff, more a lot of local stuff. Uh, just jumping ahead, you know, Trump changed the whole uh, landscape of what we were doing. So did COVID and so did um, a lot of the racial justice uh, type of issues that came up with police killings uh, and the tragedies that occurred to uh, mostly young black men. How did, how did doing this past year with Trump and everything that, that, that grew out of that, how, how difficult was that on, on a personal level to have to go in every day and, and talk about that subject? It was challenging because um, I, I, I felt a, a great deal of uh, anger against Trump, and I wanted to be a fair journalist, and I wanted to um, treat him fairly. It's always been kind of my signature to hear from both sides. When I started out at KQED, I had producers book people from Hoover, and I got all this feedback. Now, what are you booking these fascists? You know, Hoover at the time was pretty right-leaning and was seen as a corporate tool of the Republicans and all the rest of that. Now the head of it is Condoleezza Rice, so it's still viewed in that kind of vein. But at the time, uh, people were very angry about it. And I had to educate my audience. I said, look, if you're against these people, don't you want to know how they're thinking? Don't you want to know what they have to say and hear what they have to say? Um, but with Trump, it was all on a different key entirely because from the beginning, he was lying about so much. I mean, it's not to say that other politicians don't lie because they do. They lie chronically, um, and it's part of the job of a good journalist to expose and reveal a lot of that mendacity. But I was constantly faced with, with Trump, uh, uh, with these, what Washington Post would call their, you know, Pinocchios to the utmost every day almost. I mean, it was absurd. We started booking, with that in mind, we started booking people from the Lincoln group and, and people who were very critical of Trump who had been strong Republicans like Max Boot, um, like Rick Wilson, like Steve Schmidt. There were a host of them. And I liked what they had to say. Uh, it wasn't so much partisan politics because a lot of them, George Will is another good example, a lot of them were very conservative. And they still held to their conservative beliefs, held in some cases tenaciously to them. But it was interesting to hear their perspective, to hear, you know, and also to call them, you know, what about all that Tea Party stuff? Why weren't you... Uh, concern then, you know, when things were going off to extremes, only now with Trump. So it made, and it made for good radio. But we also didn't talk a lot about pro-Trump stuff because they didn't want to go on public radio. We, we invited them over and over again, you know, and they just, it was true a lot of the Bushies too. We, we had more Bush people than Trump people. But for the most part, the Democrats felt a lot more comfortable going on public broadcasting than the Republicans did, and especially the Trumpists. Yeah, I mean, I remember, apropos of different opinions, you once had very kind things to say about Pat Buchanan, of whom you had very little in common. I recall you describing him as being very much a gentleman on there. Well, I found him to be a gentleman, and, you know, that's one of the measures for me uh, of the person I'm interviewing. How uh, polite are they? How courteous are they? I like to think that I'm a polite, courteous person, so that there's going to be something reciprocal that's operating, maybe even some kind of rapport where we establish at least a sensibility that means that we've got a high level of discourse, and that's what we're, ta what we're both striving for. Buchanan also had some wit, you know, and he was a seasoned media guy. And certainly I found his politics uh, off the air somewhat reprehensible, and I felt I had to go after him. But I also went after a lot of progressives and a lot of people on the left in my day. And I do take some modicum of pride in that. 
of an equal opportunity. I like to think tough journalists when it's politicians and it was people that need to uh, be challenged. Well, I think they'll be, you know, in, in your, uh, in, in your, in your, uh, uh, it, I'm going to say, you know, in a, in a complimentary fashion, what I've always enjoyed about you is uh, in listening to the conversations you've had with people where I know that your political theories are, are different than theirs or maybe closer to mine at some point. Uh, you never got away from being uh, polite, courteous, professional, and uh, allowed them to say what was on their mind and may have disagreed with them, but not in an argumentative, not in the kind of nonsense that goes on today where people just have no sense of humanity and decency and, you know, and manners. So 40 years of intelligent conversation, Michael, you'd be uh, applauded for that. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for those kind words. You're still listening to me from Paris? From time to time. <laughs> I'm listening to you now. <laughs> I want to yeah. talk a little bit about uh, the time that we have remaining a couple of categories and people that you've met over the years. So why don't we begin with writers back when you were talking about fiction? I mean, I know you turned me on to Mordecai Richler. Uh, who are some of the, let's say, one or two people that to this day we should all be reading that may have been a guest of yours? Well, there are more than that because, like I said, my well, Some signature... of them died. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, some, most of them have died, actually. You know, I, I, I had the great fortune of interviewing some of my literary heroes, uh, like uh, Sal Bellow and Don DeLillo and Toni Morrison and Philip Roth, uh, just a whole host of them. Uh, if you name a writer of note of the 20th century, one of my, uh, I, I used to say the only two American writers that I hadn't interviewed, other than Salinger and, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, writers who were totally um, never to be interviewed. Uh, uh, Thomas Pynchon, I think if you go down the list, almost all of them at one time or another were on my program. And at one time I said only Toni Morrison and John Updike. And I had the good fortune of interviewing both of them right before they, not, in, in Updike's case, I was the last person who interviewed him before he died. And in Morrison's, uh, it was not that long before she passed on too. So that was, you know, it was a real thrill to interview them. And with Morrison, I learned an important lesson because I, I really, in some ways, uh, worshipped her. Um, I use that word advisedly, but I mean, I, I revered her. I looked up to her enormously, as I did Roth and Bellow and, and DeLillo and so many of these authors. And um, she, um, I, I was told by a friend of mine, Sidney Goldstein, who ran City Arts and Lectures in San Francisco for many years, he said, the best thing you can do with her is to be humorous because she loves humor. And it was a great tip because, in, in, in other words, I, I was a little awestruck with her. And it doesn't, as the years went by, it happened less and less with authors or with anybody for that matter. Uh, and Sidney told me that one of her closest friends was Fran Lebowitz. So I did, before we went on the air, I did a little um, uh, humorous repartee with her. And it really warmed her up to me. Plus, we were She's from the other west side of Cleveland, and I knew a lot of people in her backyard in Lorain, Ohio. Well, not, not, all of her, not all of your listeners know that you uh, aspire to be the last great uh, Jewish stand-up comedian. I mean, were you practicing jokes on her before the show? No, I wanted to be more a Jewish novelist than a Jewish comedian, Terry. Uh, <laughs> I did write a book on Jewish humor, and I did do stand-up routines, but I never aspired to be a comedian. I knew what my limitations were. But I didn't know my limitations as a novelist. And it's interesting because I just did an interview about Walter Tevis, a name you may know, who wrote the novel of the Queen's Gambit, which is the most successful thing in 
all of Netflix history. Uh, he's unfortunately deceased, but he was an enormous influence on me as a teacher. Have you been watching the show? I, I watched it and I loved it because I thought it was true to the novel. And there was a lot of Walter in that novel. And I was taught, this guy was interviewing me about Walter. And I said, you know, that um, there was just something about uh, writers, different writers, and Walter was one of them that made me, I mean, he, he made me think I could be a novelist. <laughs> and he was wrong. I mean, you know, I tried. Lord knows I tried. I wasn't good enough or bad enough, I think, as I like to say. Um, I wanted, you know, to be successful either commercially or in a literary way, and I just didn't have the chops or the imagination. So, I, and I think that had a lot to do with uh, influencing my career as a broadcaster and also influencing uh, the fact that I like doing stand-up comedy, uh, comedy and stuff. Well, I you, think, you know, these... in your defense, one could say that what you're doing, uh, there is an element of, of fiction and narrative and because you're, you're kind of crafting, even if you're talking about someone who's written something on nonfiction, uh, the way that the conversations evolve and the way they flip and go back and forth uh, is a little bit of writing on the fly, uh, to my, my thinking. It's, a, uh, it's another way of uh, using, in this case, your physical voice, but your writing voice, because it's starting out in your mind and then it's coming out of your mouth. It is your voice. You're absolutely right. And it does come out of the mind into the voice. But here's the difference uh, that has to be taken into account. When you're doing live radio or doing a live Facebook interview like we're doing, no net, it's all improvisational. You have to think on your feet. When you're doing, uh, and I tried writing novels, um, there's so much editing. And, you know, I have a great editor, my wife, with my nonfiction books, Leslie, who's been, you know, invaluable. Uh, but when you're doing things on the fly, you're editing yourself and you're much more uh, careful about what you're saying because it's in the moment. Novels go through so many rewrites. Uh, at least there are very few exceptions to that. Even short stories go through many, many rewrites, the great ones. Uh, poems, single poems go through so many rewrites or have editors. You know, people forget that a great poem like A Wasteland by that anti-Semitic T.S. Eliot uh, was nevertheless edited enormously by Ezra Pound or a writer well, like... Another famous anti-Semite. Who was also even a worse anti-Semite, right? But you, you take a uh, a writer like Raymond Carver, who was very influential in fiction writing on Americans, perhaps the most one of the most influential post World War II contemporary period. He had Gordon Lish editing all his stuff early on, and then he had to go on his own way. So it's a very different operation in that sense. Yeah, there are, Mac, are not a lot of Max Perkins. Well, I shouldn't say that. I guess some of the great editors today, I think of, uh, uh, you know, Bob Gottlieb, uh, John Siegel at Knopf. Uh, uh, oh, you may have, since you did Updike, you probably knew Judith Jones, who I had a chance to meet on several occasions. Uh, you know, that, that's a very, very special kind of talent. You've named some of the best, and it is a special talent. But Max Perkins was in a class by himself. I mean, remember what he, he was doing, Thomas Wolfe, which was gargantuan uh, at Labor to Do. And he was also doing Hemingway, and he was also, you know, doing Fitzgerald. I mean, it's just amazing what he was And you had Scott Berg's great book on Max Perkins. Yeah, that's right. Which was kind of extraordinary. So one or two quick questions, and I'll let you, let you go. Uh, over this long arc of this career, who are some of the, uh, we've mentioned a few, what might be like the one or two greatest interviews you, you did, not so much necessarily from all of your work, but the way that it, the way that it transpired on air? totally uh, without thinking about it. 
And who was your greatest disappointment? If you want to, if we can go there. Well, give me a couple so we don't identify just one person. It's always, uh, and I don't mean to be evasive, but it's always hard for me to say greatest interviewer uh, interview because, first of all, there have been, you know, thousands. But aside from that. No, I mean, uh, I mean more, not so much. I mean more in the sense of uh, almost like theater, how something maybe you weren't expecting and it just became a, an extraordinary experience uh, from someone perhaps that wasn't that well known. Well, there are a couple that come to mind. Maybe, you know, like Malcolm Gladwell thinks, the things that come to mind immediately are those you, you should honor. Um, I'm not sure that's the case, but I'm often asked at dinner parties, you know, who is your greatest interview? And it's a hard question to answer uh, because it, it depends what field you're talking about, what area, what, you know, I've interviewed some great scientists and Nobel recipients and presidents of the United States and so forth. But, you know, what comes to mind are... Um, some of the, when, when you say surprises, you know, for example, I was interviewing uh, a famous African-American actor by the name of Billy D. Williams. They called him the black car Clark Gable at one point. Mm -hmm. And the interview was going very poorly. He was kind of muttering monosyllabic responses. And I, I just, it was like pulling teeth. And I said to him, I, I, I took a chance and I said to him, you know, you, you seem like you don't want to be here. You seem like your mind's on something else. Uh, I, I said, that's my intuition, and I don't mean to insult you or anything, but that's the feeling I get. And if I'm wrong, tell me I'm wrong. And he said, no, you're right. He said, I shouldn't be here because my mother just died. You know, this is like L'Etanger, right? Like Camus. His mother had just died recently, but he felt he wanted to do this for the Black Film Festival. And so I started asking him about his mother. It was a natural place to go. It certainly wasn't what the interview was going to be. It was going to be about, you know, his career and black film making and uh, the films that were in this uh, black expo uh, that was being run by one of my students at the time, Burial Clay, uh, now has a theater named after him, but used to be Lorraine, Lorraine Hansberry Theater. And it was just very, you know, there are those moments that just surprise you because they're uplifting, they're poignant. Uh, you were talking about, um, editors, Joyce Carol Oates, um, who became a friend and wrote an introduction to one of my books, but long before that, um, her agent was a guy named Billy Abraham, and he had died. And I was interviewing her, and I asked her about Billy Abraham, because I knew he was a very important part of her life, and she just went mute and started sobbing. I mean, you get live radio, you don't expect those kind of moments. And People do remember those moments. They stopped their cars. People tell me they stopped their car when I was interviewing Lynn Cheney, you know, Robert Cheney's uh, wife, who was head of the National Endowment for the Humanities, because in that case, I did get kind of into an argument with her, um, which is not necessarily, um, as we said earlier, uh, typical of how I operated, but it just came about. And people remember those moments, just like they remember Terry Gross's interview with uh, Gene Simmons when um, basically she called him a pig because that was what he was behaving like. But I also think about, because some of the most meaningful interviews are people who are doing kind of unheralded and unsung things. Thinking about, I mentioned hospice workers, for example. I was very struck by their work early on when I was at KTIM. But later on, I interviewed people who were like Doctors Without Borders and journalists who put themselves at terrible risk of life and limb to cover war and to 
be right on the front lines. And, and people, you know, now who are on the front lines with this pandemic, um, these are these are heroic people. And there are many of those heroes who are unsung. We can talk about them in the general sense, but to hear their stories, their individual stories, has always been uplifting to me. And these sto- these are stories that deserve and need to be heard because they are heroic stories. Well, Michael, it goes back to what I said at the outset. You know, your your, your general menschliness, your empathy, your compassion. Uh, and, and Billy D. Williams is a perfect example. Uh, that's the kind of interview that not a lot of... Uh, not a lot of uh, talk show hosts would have been able to do. Uh, it took a little bit of a leap of faith on your part. And, and then once you were informed, then you, you rolled with it. And uh, which is what it's, uh, to me, which is this is all about. Otherwise, you sit here with a, a notepad and have four or five questions. And that's the end. It's not a conversation. I don't know what it is. So That was uh, not what I wanted to do, Terry. You know, PR people will supply you with questions and they'll say, you can go at these questions in the order, and the people who you're interviewing sometimes are trained to sell their books, so they want you to go in that order. That's not the kind of interviewing I could do or even be capable of. But just another thing, I was recently interviewed by someone from the San Francisco Examiner and asking him about unpredictable moments. And there was a moment of joy once when I was interviewing Judy Collins, a famous singer, and she was singing The Gypsy Rover, and this has fortunately only happened once in my career. I just did a few bars with her. I couldn't contain myself. And those are the things that stay, you know, in one's memory and one's heart. Well, Michael, I, I, want, to, I want to thank you for 40 years of uh, wonderful memories, uh, great work. Uh, you've been an inspiration to me. Uh, and it's, uh, I wish you only the best in your retirement. Are you also going to retire from San Francisco State? I'm technically retired now, but I'll be teaching a class in the spring and, uh, also a 10-week class at Stanford, uh, but I'm generally uh, going into retirement. And, and, you know, there's a lot of writing I want to do still, and there's some other type of broadcast perhaps that lie up ahead. Oh, that's great. I, I look forward to all of that. And, and once again, uh, uh, congratulations on a great career. Thank you. And I, and I look forward to your, your grandchildren. I, I have three, so uh, this is a special kind of nachos, as we say. Uh, Where enjoy are they? It. Where, where are they? What are 18, 14, and 11 in, in, in San Rafael? Oh, they're in San Rafael. Well, you got to come back here. Well, when I, when I can. <laughs> yeah. And can. Uh, can, can you send me a link of this interview we did? Absolutely. Like it'll, go, it'll, go, uh, it'll go live probably by Friday uh, at the site, and then it'll be, uh, I'll promote it in next Wednesday's newsletter. I promoted the, uh, it today as coming next week. So a lot of people in the Bay Area are already plugged in that this is going to happen. And so once I have the link, I'll, I'll send it to you. We'll well, as long as, as you're complimenting, let me say, you know, that you, uh, I've never been interviewed by you before, but you've certainly done a yeoman job. And thank you for this. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you, Michael. A pleasure. Be well. Be well. Take care. Bye-bye.